Good morning. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. You know, that's a verse in the Bible, right? Yeah, that's a good verse. Psalm 118, if you're wanting to know where it's found. I want to start things off today with a little quiz, okay? Now, in my small group, I do this periodically, and I get one of two reactions from people. Actually, most people enjoy the quizzes because they kind of get to test their knowledge a little bit of the Bible. But there's always a couple people that tense up because I think it gives them flashbacks of when they were in school years ago. So uh, don't, don't allow yourself to tense up over this. All right, just a real short quiz. Question number one, and don't answer out loud right away. I want to give this a little bit of time for people to think it through. The longest chapter in the Bible. What is it? 119. Psalm 119. Yep, that clearly is the longest. Question number two. <clears throat> and this is based on the majority of people's opinions. Hardest portion of the Bible to understand. So a little bit louder. So Revelation. There you go. Question three. The best known, and this, if you Google this, you'll, you'll clearly see that this is it. Best known and most quoted verse in the Bible. John 3.16. Yeah. Yeah, there's a number of verses like, the Lord is my shepherd, I shut on one, or in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. I mean, we, right away, you know, those, those are some that we hear quoted a lot. But John 3.16, in fact, you just sang a song that is based on that verse. All right, question four. In our English Bibles, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna be talking about this um, a bit. This last one because it falls right in the middle of the passage of scripture that that we're focusing our time on. When I worked at Christian camps, uh, I never went to camp as a kid. Uh, I my conversion kind of happened after um, what you typically think of as as church camp um, years, but, uh, but I've spent quite a few years at church camp, some summers, three or four weeks of camp, and uh, one of the things that we would always do at camp is, is we would have scripture memory. We would break up like into family groups or teams, and, and you know, part of the friendly competition that would happen during the week is we'd be challenging kids to memorize, memorize all the apostles' names, memorize the books of the Bible in their proper order, memorize particular verses. Um, and, and kids are like adults in that. There's always a, some that are just convinced, I can't do that. I can't remember things like that. And, and so for people like that, I always included this verse from today's text, John chapter 11. Jesus wept because because uh, they all keep kind of get started with memorizing uh, because of how short that verse is. 
And, and to this day, a lot of you know that that is the shortest verse in the Bible. You may not remember exactly what chapter in the Bible it's found. You may not remember exactly what the occasion was that that played out. But uh, today, uh, you'll be reminded both of the chapter and what the situation is. It's not the only time or place that Jesus cried. You know, I want to be clear on this, that there were other times, more than once, Jesus wept. I'm going to show you one verse that, that's outside of the Gospels, but it does give us some insight on this. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7 says, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. And so this is talking about, you know, in plural form, multiple times. Now, we obviously, our minds, when we read that, would go to Gethsemane, but it seems to indicate that it may be even beyond Gethsemane that this verse is talking about. So there were multiple occasions. Do you remember the, the scripture when it talks about the triumphal entry? This was um, toward the beginning of the week that Jesus ended up being crucified and buried um, at the end of the week, uh, there was this triumphal entry. Jesus was riding on a young donkey, and, and people were waving palm branches and laying their, their robes and their coats down for, for the donkey to, to walk on, and they were shouting out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And, and the Pharisees were getting all bent out of shape. And they were shouting at Jesus, get your disciples to shut their mouths and quit saying that. And then that's when Jesus said that, uh, you know, if they don't say that, then the rocks are going to cry out. Yeah, we're talking that particular occasion. It was a festive day with shouting and smiling. And, and it wasn't the kind of reception that the disciples were anticipating Jesus would get going into Jerusalem on this occasion. But, but uh, you can just imagine the disciples were grinning ear to ear as, as Jesus was getting this reception. The irony of all that, though, is Jesus wasn't smiling the entire time. Oh, he might have been smiling some during that. But here's the verse in Luke's gospel that immediately follows the telling of that triumphal entry that I summarized just a moment ago. It says this in Luke 19, verse 41. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. He wept over it. The word for, for crying here is a strong word. It means that he was sobbing. He was wailing. Yeah, this wasn't a quiet kind of crying that Jesus was doing. So yeah, it was a festive day in so many ways, but yet Jesus was crying. Now, the purpose of today's message isn't to go in and explain all of that. You can read the verses following that and get a pretty good idea of what was contributing to all of that for yourself. No, the verse that we're focusing on today falls in the text of John chapter 11, and it's verse 35. The, the Greek actually has more than two words in it, but when it's translated into English, it just comes down to these two words. Jesus wept. 
an interesting part of this is that Jesus knew full well what he was about ready to do. You know, because this was the occasion that Lazarus was dead. His friend Lazarus had been buried a few days earlier. And, uh, and this is when Jesus wept. But Jesus knew entirely how this was all going to turn out. And yet he wept. Now, this isn't the loud, wailing kind of crying. No, this is the word that talks about that quiet kind of weeping, that personal crying that uh, you've undoubtedly experienced at, at different times. This, this is what Jesus was experiencing on this day. So let's get a running start um, at what is contained in this passage. If you got your Bible, I would encourage you to go to John chapter 11, because there's going to be at least three different sections like this of this chapter that I'm going to be reading today, and so you can follow along uh, if you'd like. So starting in verse 1, it says this, Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. All right, so Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, they're all siblings of one another. And, and uh, they're, they're in uh, uh, this town of Bethany. Uh, Bethany is real close to Jerusalem. It's within two miles of Jerusalem, and that's why some of the disciples, they were kind of opposed to the whole idea of going there to begin with because uh, they knew uh, Jerusalem only spelled trouble for Jesus, and, and so they didn't think this was a good idea. Now, there's no mention made of Mary and Martha and Lazarus's mom and dad. Um, you can search all over the place in the Gospels, and you're not going to find anything there. So our assumption is they probably have passed away uh, by this point in time. And, uh, and so the account, uh, this account and other accounts, just involve these three. Jesus knew them. He knew them well, and he loved them. And he had been at Bethany more than once. This isn't the first time that he's going to be going there. Well, the, 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 at the core of the story here, Lazarus is sick. There's more that we don't know about his sickness than what we do know um, because we don't know, you know, just how severe of a sickness this was and what type of a sickness it was. But apparently it was urgent enough that they quickly sent word to Jesus. They knew where Jesus was. He was about 20 or 30 miles away. Um, and so they sent a messenger to deliver a message. But we, we can clearly assume that this wasn't the common cold that Lazarus had. They knew that uh, uh, this was pretty pressing and they wanted Jesus to be there. And Jesus was at this point point in time, he was at the place where John the Baptist had been doing a bunch of his baptisms earlier, okay? So, uh, so they send the message. 
And the thing that I want you to be sure and notice here is Jesus' reaction when the message is delivered to him. Um, it, it really stands out in the early part. It was the last verse of what I just read, verse 6. It says this, Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Now, if you just take part of what that verse is saying and kind of pull it out of its context, that sounds pretty cold-hearted, right? I mean, he just heard that Lazarus was sick, but whatever he's doing, he has continued to do for two more days before he ended up you know, traveling back to Bethany. He didn't drop everything initially. This wasn't because of a miscalculation on Jesus' part, hardly that. Um, and it wasn't because he didn't care, because he did care. He loved Lazarus. He loved his sisters. Oftentimes, this is kind of what we conclude when we cry out to the Lord, when we are sick ourselves or we have a loved one who is really struggling with a major illness or accident or something like that. We call upon God, and then we don't sense any response from God, and we kind of wrestle with, does the Lord even care with what is going on right now? Um, and, and I understand on an emotional level why you know, why we wrestle with that kind of stuff. But, but the fact of the matter is God does care. Just like in this passage, he really did care, you know, for Lazarus and what was happening here. So after waiting two full days, Jesus heads out against the wishes of the others. And you'll see that in verse 8 if you read every verse of the account. Incredibly, Jesus makes this statement when they start heading out. In verses 14 and 15, he says, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake, I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Again, man, that sounds cold-hearted. You know, Lazarus is dead, and I'm glad I wasn't there. You know, if you just look at that at face value, but there's more at play in what is going on here. And like I said at the very beginning, is Jesus is in total control of this situation, and that becomes apparent as you read down through the text. So let's pick it up with verse 17 and read down to verse 35. It says, On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered to that and said, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. 
And after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and she went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Now you see that his weeping is directly attached to him seeing them weeping. He was seeing the emotional toll that all this was having on them, not just the sisters, but others that were there on that occasion. And that that is part of what was was sparking uh, Jesus um, to start weeping. Lazarus had been dead for four days, according to what I just read. Four days. Had Jesus left immediately when the messenger had arrived to him, if he had left immediately, he still would have got there when Lazarus had been dead for two days because it took right at two days for him to get there. And so, you know, the question that begs to be asked in this is what is the significance of waiting two days? I mean, that, that, to me, that seems like one of the obvious questions, at least, that you're going to wrestle with in looking at this text. Why didn't he just go initially? Why didn't he wait five days? I mean, what was the deal with waiting for two days? And the answer I'm going to give you here, I'm, I'm going to just acknowledge this right up front. This isn't coming from the Scripture. This is coming from tradition, rabbi tradition that was taught back at that time. In fact, it was taught multiple centuries. We have it, you know, in written form from the third century um, that this was um, a basic Jewish belief, though you don't find it in the Bible. But they believed that when a person died, their soul would hover near the body three days to see if there was a chance to re-enter the body. This, this was just common rabbi teaching back at that time. For three days, the soul would remain in close proximity, you know, just in case there ended up being an opportunity. But then after the third day, the, the soul would depart away from the body for good um, when decomposition and all of this, you know, started uh, developing with the body. So you could say that if, and this is, you know, about the best explanation that I have as to why Jesus waited two more days so that it was a total of four days before he ended up arriving there, is you could say that Lazarus was convincingly dead. Okay, it seems weird adding that word in there, but according to Jewish thought of the day, that it was beyond question. I mean, because he had been dead four days. 
Both sisters greet Jesus in a similar fashion. They say, oh, the Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You know, the other sister wasn't there when the first one said it. And then Mary came, and then she said the same thing. I think that's a bit of uh, an indication that over these four days around the house, that statement had been made more than once. If only the Lord had been here, he wouldn't have had to have died. They're sisters, but they're not identical. They're wired differently. As you're reading down through the story, you're going to see that the way Jesus responds to each one of them is different than the other. And I think that as much as anything has to do with the fact that they're wired differently. You might recall other passages of scripture where it talks about these two sisters and it gives us good insight into their differences and here's one of them that stands out to me in the last five verses of Luke chapter 10. This is when Jesus and his disciples went to their house and so here you have at least 13 guys that come into the house and they're planning on staying for a bit. I mean they're going to spend the night and all of this. So what do we see Martha doing when you're reading that short passage? You see Martha scurrying around, trying to put everything in order, trying to make the appropriate preparations, you know, for all of their guests that are there. This wasn't the only time, and it wasn't the first time that Jesus and the disciples had come by. But, you know, it was really important to Martha, hospitality. So I would assume that that involved food. She wanted to make sure that there was plenty of food that was prepared for all of them to eat. And she also wanted to make sure that they all had a place that they would be able to sleep during that night. So here Martha is, you know, rushing around in the house trying to get all of this in place. Meanwhile, where is Mary? She's sitting at Jesus' feet, hanging on every word that he's saying. She hasn't lifted a finger to make sure that there were pillows in place or there were vegetables that were cleaned or none of that stuff. Martha was doing all of that. Finally, Martha, she, she, Martha's just kind of at her wits end and because she's probably checking, you know, what time of day it is and that she doesn't know she's going to get all this done. And meanwhile, every time she walks by where Jesus and all the disciples and Mary were sitting, you know, she, it just burns her that I'm doing all the work and she's not. And, and so she finally interrupts Jesus and says, Lord, tell my sister to get up and help me with all the preparations that need to be made. And Jesus' response is, Martha, Martha, you're distracted by so many things, but only one thing is needed, and I'm not going to take that away from your sister. Yeah, that little short five-verse passage gives us a good amount of insight into these two sisters and how they are wired differently. One's real reflective, the other's very detailed oriented. Well, we come to the final part of the passage, and so let me read, starting in verse 38. It says, Jesus once more, deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time, there is a bad odor, 
for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here that they may believe that you have sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth about his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. So initially, they're standing outside the grave. Both sisters are there. Some of their friends and all that have been grieving with them, they are there. And Jesus says, remove the stone, roll the stone aside. Why is it not surprising that Martha is the one who speaks up? Remember, she's into all the details here. And she's already thinking through and saying, Lord, I don't think that's a good idea. By this point in time, you know, she didn't want him to be embarrassed or, or for something inappropriate to be happening now. And so she's questioning whether or not this should happen. And that totally fits with what we believe that we know about her personality in comparison to her sister. And then Jesus says this to her says, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? I told you something bigger is at play here. You know, it's not just, well, can Jesus rescue their brother, Lazarus? There's something much bigger playing out. This is the seventh and final miracle performed by Jesus in John's gospel. In this series of messages that we're wrapping up today, this is the seventh message. We started this whole series out by talking about the very first miracle that Jesus performed, and that was turning water into wine. And then we talked about how he healed the government official's son from a distance. And then it was the Sabbath day, a 38-year-old invalid that he healed. And then the feeding of the 5,000 men. So you add to that women and children, quite a crowd with basically a sack lunch. And then we talked about Jesus walking on the water. That was the occasion where Peter did take a couple of steps on the water. And then we, um, last week, Kurt talked about the healing of the blind man. And now, here we are with Lazarus, dead and buried for four days in a tomb. In so many ways, this is the most remarkable miracle of all, of all seven that John is recording in his gospel. It's kind of surprising that the other gospel writers don't include this miracle. You know, that's a little bit of a head scratcher. Why, why didn't the other three gospel writers include this? Because this is, we would all describe this as a biggie that, that uh, was happening here. But, but yeah, sure enough, they don't include it. And then Jesus said, and he said this in a loud voice. He said, Lazarus, come out. I want you to note the specific words. It's not many words, but notice how specific he is. He says, Lazarus, come out. Yeah, notice that because it's like one, one uh, um, scholar you know, said about this, that 
Jesus was being very specific to say Lazarus because if he just said come out, then all the graves within earshot distance would be emptying at this moment. You know, and and it does. It makes you chuckle. It's kind of like a tongue-in-cheek remark. You know, that's how we would hear that. But yet, as I was studying on this, I started thinking, maybe there's a little bit more behind that kind of a statement. And sure enough, here's something Jesus taught. John recorded in his gospel a few chapters earlier in John chapter 5. Jesus said this, Do not be amazed at this, because the time is coming when all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good things to the resurrection of life, but those who have done wicked things to the resurrection of judgment. Interesting. You know, all these people. But that's not this occasion in John 11. Okay, so, so the Lord isn't emptying the graves. Not yet. He's just wanting to empty this one grave. And so he specifically says, Lazarus, come out. Now, you know, it, it never fails that whenever, like, I'm in a small group setting and, and we're studying passages and this is one of the passages, one of the stories in the Bible that we end up coming across, that there's usually someone who voices it, but a lot of other people nod in agreement. Is like, how come there's no record of an interview with Lazarus after he came out of the grave? I mean, surely there was an equivalent um, uh, in Bethany or or, you know, just two miles down the road in Jerusalem, uh, um, a first century Barbara Walters or somebody, you know, who could have sat down with him and interviewed him and asked some of the questions like, what was it like? Did you have a warm feeling? Was there a bright light? Did you see yourself traveling rapidly in a tunnel? What did you experience? You know, we, we, we hear people, you know, that write stuff like that in books and all of this, and we can't help but think, Man, what a perfect opportunity to gain additional insight. But the thing is, that's not the focal point of this account. And so John's not recording one word about what Lazarus experienced during those four days because that is not what the account is all about. What is the takeaway of this story? The takeaway very clearly is that death doesn't have the last word. Death doesn't have the last word. The spotlight, in fact, you could elaborate on that. The spotlight isn't on death. The spotlight is on Jesus here. The spotlight isn't so much on Lazarus, although you knew every eye was glued on him when he came out of that dark um, cave. But yet the spotlight ultimately was focused on Jesus. Appropriately, um, later, John was exiled on the island of Patmos, and that's when he wrote that book we referred to uh, in the little quiz, the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 1, John has a vision of the glorified Jesus, and it describes what he saw and everything, but even more importantly, he records the words that Jesus spoke. Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. Jesus says this, 
don't be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. This was after, clearly after this John 11 and the raising of Lazarus. But, but that's even after Jesus was crucified and in the grave and rose again. This is after all of that. And Jesus says, I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever. And then he includes this thought, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Interesting phrase, holding the keys. What is that communicating? It's communicating that he is in control. He is in control. Death doesn't have the final say. Jesus does. You know, I doubt there's, if anyone walked here today, although I guess that'd be possible, the majority of you drove. Either you came on a motorcycle like I did this morning, enjoying one of these latter days in October and the weather that we're having, or you came in a car or a truck or something like that. And so you and your spouse or you and your family, you arrive today. It's my assumption you don't plan on spending all day here. It's my assumption that you're not planning on spending the night here tonight. Your intention is you're going to go back home, right? But in your group, whether it's just you as a couple or you as a family, there is one person that is the key. Because they hold the keys. You're not going to get back in that car and go anywhere if you don't have the keys. And this is what Jesus is signifying. Is that he's got control of death. Death will not have the final say. He has the keys. Now I'm going to give you a handful of passages here in the last couple of minutes. And my intention is that this whole subject of death and Lazarus from whatever kind of an illness he had, he experienced death. The reality of the matter is that, that that's, that's a big part of all of our stories in here. Unless the Lord comes back before we die, we're all going to experience death. It might, might be through a sickness. It might be through an accident. It might just be through old age. But we're all going to eventually encounter death death. And because of that, I want to help impress upon you five passages I want you to definitely be aware of, okay? Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 says, since the children have flesh and blood, that's talking about us as human beings, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, that's talking about uh, the Christmas story. Jesus taking on human flesh. He too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. So what that passage is telling us is that the idea of the fear and dread of death need not be something that haunts us in our lives. Because this is the bottom line as to why Jesus came into this world was to make it possible for us to be set free from our fear of death. 
knowing that death does not have the final say. As followers of Christ, as believers, death does not have the final say for any of us who are followers of Christ and bear his name. Really key passage, but there are some others. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and I'll just show you verse 1. The, a few verses preceding this and a few verses following this makes it very clear that he's talking here about death in contrast to the shortness of this life, in contrast to the longevity of eternity. That eternity is forever. And here's the statement that Paul makes. For we know that if our earthly house, he's talking about our body, he's using terminology like house and tent, stuff like that. We know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, which inevitably that's going to happen for all of us, the day is going to come where we're going to turn in our body because its usefulness is over. A house, we have a building from God, a house not made with human hands, eternal in the heavens. So, so Paul's really trying to drive home a thought for all of us as believers that we have this assurance that whenever that day comes that we turn in our body, whether it be from a bad accident, or whether that be, like I said earlier, through some illness or old age. When that time comes, we turn in the old tent, this old house. We're going to receive one that is eternal, one that will last forever. It will never wear out. Here's another passage, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep. Now he's talking about people who die. So we don't want you to be in the dark. We don't want you to be ignorant about people who die or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. Now let me clarify, he's not saying that we shouldn't grieve, that as believers, when you have a loved one die, that, man, you've got to stop those tears and you've got to wear a smile. And He's not saying that. He's saying that, that he doesn't want us to grieve like people who have no hope. As believers, we have hope. And so we look at death in an entirely different way than people that don't have faith in Christ. And so that's why he's saying, brothers, we don't want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep, who die, or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. You see, death isn't the end. There is something more besides. There is something on the other side that we will have the opportunity to experience. Here's another one. John chapter 11, and this is a part of today's text. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. Now, that kind of sounds like a contradiction on the surface. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Not in the ultimate sense. You will never end. You will never cease to exist. No. That's, that's not what death represents. Especially as a believer. That is not in, by any means what death represents. And that was the point Jesus was trying to make to Martha at that particular time. Now, it's not uncommon 
for some as they approach death, when they're like on the doorstep of death because of whatever, a serious illness or something, um, for them to have some questions, for them to be wrestling with, with some doubts. It, it's not, that's not uncommon. In fact, a, a number of us are, that are here in the room, whenever that time comes about and we find ourselves laid up in a bed, whether that be in the hospital or whether that be at home, and, and we know that our time is short, it's about over, um, there will be a percentage of us when we're at that place that, you know, we, we will be asking for reassurance. We'll be asking to hear again some of the words that are found in the Word of God to help breathe into us some of the reassurance that we need at that critical point. I have had the opportunity multiple times to be in the room of someone you know, leading up to, and at the time of their death, and, and even when they were conscious, they were aware, you know, of their surroundings and all. And, and a few of those times, you know, they, they, would, they would ask the question. And here's one of my favorite passages that I have shared on that occasion with numerous people. It's 1 John chapter 5, again, coming from the Apostle John, who wrote the other things that are a part of today's text. But this is another one of his letters. 1 John chapter 5, it says this, and this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. Let me reread that second sentence because, man, that's, that's major stuff. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. I, everything hinges on Jesus. That's why the spotlight in this passage, it's on Jesus. The spotlight, as far as our existence and our lives, the spotlight is on Jesus. Do we have him or not? Because that makes all the difference. Well, when you're looking at this passage in John chapter 11, there are two basic reactions that started playing out, you know, after Lazarus was raised from the dead. You know, on the one hand, many people believed. Many of the people that were there comforting Mary and Martha, you know, when they witnessed what had transpired, you know, they became believers themselves. You know, because, I mean, it was undeniable, you know, that uh, uh, Jesus was more than just a, a prophet or a rabbi. He was much more than that. So that's what um, the very next verse from where I stopped reading, it goes on to say that they believed. However, not everyone believed. Others started plotting. What were they plotting? In chapter 11, verse 53, they were plotting, how do we eliminate Jesus? How do we get rid of him? Get him out of our hair once and for all. How are we going to kill him? I mean, that's what they started plotting. But that wasn't the only thing they started plotting. Now, remember that when the scripture was originally written, it wasn't written in chapter divisions. And so to answer, you know, the second part, you have to go into the next chapter. But it's given us insight 
into some of this stuff. And it says in chapter 12, verses 9 through 11, what they were also beginning to plot wasn't just killing Jesus. They were starting to figure out, how can we kill Lazarus? Yeah. Yeah, because Lazarus, man, he was a living testimony, you know, drawing people's attention to Jesus and undermining everything that the religious leaders back in that day, you know, were wanting. And, and they were like, man, we got, we got to eliminate this guy. I mean, never mind the fact that he already died and Jesus raised him back to life again. And now you're going to try to get him to die again. Okay. You know, I mean, that you stop and really think about that. But, but I don't think they were thinking it through that far. They were just wanting to eliminate Lazarus and the impact that Lazarus was having as more and more people saw the evidence that Jesus was more than just a man. Why are we studying these miracles? Why do we look at this miracle today? Why do we look at the six other miracles in this series? I'll close with this verse. It's what John says toward the tail end of his gospel. He said, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is why this is all recorded. What was that sentence in that passage? That second sentence, he who has a son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Do you have the Son? Those that are watching online, do you have the Son? It makes all the difference. For a good number of you, some time back, you made that all-important decision. Embrace Christ in faith, and you're trying to live for him. You perhaps aren't living on a level that you would like to because you keep fouling things up and tripping up and falling on your face. But, but that's your desire is to live for him, live a life that brings glory to him. Good for you because you'd be a part of that first part of that sentence. He who has the son has life. But then again, there might be some that you're still in the tire kicking mode kind of checking out all this stuff and you're really not sure where you fall in regards to all of this. You haven't made a decision ultimately as to where you stand with Christ. We've all been there. We were all there at one point in time. Some of us may be, you know, more conscientiously than others, but, but we've all been there. And so the fact that, that some may be at that point in time and they haven't decided yet, you know, it's great that you're still looking into it. You're still searching. But just realize a lot hinges on this decision. He who has a son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. You don't want to delay that decision too long. We're going to close out our time with, with a time of communion. And, and for all, all of you, who see yourself and consider yourself as being followers of Christ, this is the time 
when we will take the bread and eat it in the cup and drink it, and we will remember the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross on our behalf, his substitutionary death. Now, if, if, you, if you really aren't at a point where you consider yourself to be a follower of Christ, that's fine. Just, just let this be a contemplative uh, moment for a couple of minutes here uh, at this time, and then we'll close out things um, at the end. So, so let's prayerfully reflect on what it is that the Lord did, the, the reason the cross happened to begin with on our behalf. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to be able to meet publicly. Thank you that we live in a country where we can meet publicly and honor you and worship you. Father, I pray that you're pleased not just by what has taken place in this place today, but in what takes place in our lives in the days that follow this day as we live for you. Might you be glorified. It's the least that we can do is to live for you in view of the fact that you died for us. Thank you for the hope that you've given. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.